Please take your Bible, would you please? And let's go over to the book of Ruth. Ruth chapter 2 is what we're interested in as we dive back into our study in this book. Ruth chapter 2, and we're going to be interested in verses 6 through 13 of Ruth chapter 2 as this story continues to unfold in an amazing manner. Now, I want you to know that the role and the character of believing women today in our culture is under attack from feminist theology. The purpose of this attack is to undermine and destroy the power and the influence of godly women. And there are women who claim to be Christians and yet are driven by ungodly attitudes of feminism who believe that to follow biblical teaching on genuine godly femininity is to, in a sense, adopt a demeaning and misogynistic type of belief. They angrily pronounce that all forms of male leadership are toxic, coercive, and they also insist that complementarianism teaching represses women, turning them into oppressed slaves. Now, that type of philosophy has profoundly influenced many women in conservative Bible-believing churches today. And in fact, you'll hear them say now that they are soft complementarians. What does that mean? Well, that really means that they're closet egalitarians. Why? Because they are convinced that complementarianism does violence to equality between men and women. And they've surrendered to the idea that complementarian teaching views females as somehow inferior human beings. One egalitarian wrote this, quoting them, females were failed males, argued Plato, and people often read Genesis in the Bible as saying that man was made in God's image while woman was made in man's. Now, of course, that's a horrific misunderstanding of what's going on in Genesis chapter 1. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. A woman bears just as much of the image of God as any man does. Partial or full acceptance of egalitarian teaching will eventually lead, I want you to understand, to really radical changes in feminine attitudes and actions. What will happen is that she will go to war in her mind against what she believes is keeping her unjustly oppressed. What does that do? Well, in effect, that turns her to becoming, she will become demanding, um, assertive, vitriolic, angry towards anyone who holds any kind of a different view. In her mind, she has a just cause. She must look out for herself and her sisters who are repressed. Now, I want to hastily say here and interject that there are men who use the Bible and its teaching on woman's submission as an excuse to mistreat and demean women. That's there. That's true, and it's horribly wrong. We also need to oppose those who advocate 
a chattel or kind of blind submission of women because that's not what Scripture teaches either. And I hate it when the Bible is misused to advance some kind of worldly idea. As believers, we have to stand up for women, especially women who are mistreated in our culture and society, and the Bible is used as an excuse for that mistreatment. That should never happen. You say, well, what does that have to do with the text that we're dealing with today? Everything, all right? Ruth is a sterling example of biblical femininity. She's a woman of very deep character, a sense of purpose, and a confident trust in her Lord. She is brave, courageous, confident, focused, And yet her most amazing quality is her gracious kindness. Her gracious kindness. Now to begin with, put a little marker here and let's go over to Proverbs chapter 11 and verse 16. There's a little phrase there that's really key. Proverbs chapter 11 and verse 16. Where Solomon writes here, a gracious Or you could translate this, kind-hearted woman attains honor. A gracious or kind-hearted woman attains honor. Several weeks ago, when I was studying through Ruth chapter 2, the very passage that, that we're speaking on today, and I'm taking a look at what's going on in the life of Ruth as a believing woman as a Gentile convert to Judaism, as I'm looking at that, this is the verse that popped in my mind. A gracious woman attains honor. The Hebrew word here for gracious, chin, or kind-hearted, describes a woman who presents a very pleasing impression on other people, eliciting their favor She's not demanding, she's not assertive, she's not combative, she's not belligerent. A woman like that incites hostility. Instead, her graciousness gains honor. And there in verse 16, when he talks about a gracious woman attains honor, it's the word kavod. It's the same word that's used in Psalm 19 and verse 1, where the heavens declare the glory of God, the kavod of God. It's a word that means heaviness, importance, significance, influence. A gracious woman attains influence is the idea. She's incredibly influential. Um, Now, with that in mind, Turn over to Proverbs chapter 31 that Jay had an opportunity to read just a little bit earlier. And let me focus in on, there's so much that I could say about what he read there, but we'll just drop into verse 30 for a moment, where it says, charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. So now a gracious woman attains great influence among other people. In other words, a gracious woman is incredibly powerful. Let me say it again. A gracious woman is incredibly powerful. 
And it says nothing about the fact of how pretty she is. It says nothing about the fact how charmful she is. It says um, nothing about how beautiful she is. But what this verse says is when a woman really fears the Lord, she's the one that's going to be praised. That is this kind of a woman. This is what we're talking about. Now let's go back and explore how Ruth is a Proverbs 11.16 and Proverbs 31.30 type of a woman back in Ruth chapter 2. Now I've divided our text today into three parts. The first part is in verses 6 and 7, which has to do with a great respect for authority. That's the first part, a great respect for authority. The second part is in verses 8 through 10, which deals with the gracious response of authority. Verses 8 through 10, gracious response of authority. And the third part is the grand reason for graciousness. That's verses 11 through 13. The grand reason for graciousness. So there's three parts. The great respect for authority in verses 6 and 7. The gracious response of authority, verses 8 through 10. And then the grand reason for this graciousness is in verses 11 through 13. So let's take a look at this first part in verses 6 and 7 and follow along as I read. The servant in charge of the reapers replied, she is the young Moabite woman who returned with Naomi from the land of Moab. And she said, please let me glean and gather after the reapers among the sheaves. Thus she came and has remained from the morning until now. She has been sitting in the house for a little while. So this first part is the great respect for authority here. What does it really mean to have respect for authority? Well, it means to show honor. It means to show esteem. It means sometimes to be even obedient to that authority that has a greater position or is greater age than we have. And I want you to note that Ruth's reputation begins to shine forth here in verse 6. Ruth's reputation begins to shine forth here in Ruth 6, or verse 6, I should say, of chapter 2. And this is Ruth's honorable reputation. Her honorable reputation. In verse 5, Boaz inquires about Ruth because he knows his labors, and she's not one of his common laborers in the field, Boaz highlights her youthfulness. And we saw that in verse 5 in our last message. Now in verse 6, a young servant boy. In fact, the Hebrew word here is a very deliberate word that stresses the youthfulness of this lad. A young servant boy who oversaw the other reapers, responds to Boaz as their representatives. Now notice, when it comes to Ruth's honorable reputation here, notice two aspects of this young servant boy's description of Ruth. Number one, he says, Ruth is a young Moabite woman. Now on the surface, that seems like an innocent description of Ruth. 
But in the cultural setting of the ancient Near East, a cultural setting of unrest between the nations of Israel as well as Moab, this could be actually a very alarming statement. She was a foreigner who comes from a country that was often in conflict with and had border disputes with the Jews. In other words, what Ruth has done is nothing less than incredibly stupid or incredibly courageous. Not only is she a single young woman, widowed, who could easily be taken advantage of by wicked men, but she's immediately recognized as an enemy of the Jews. In other words, once the term Moabite is used, that stirred all kinds of negative connotations in the mind of a typical ancient Jew. One Bible scholar says it like this. After the Jews' conquest of the land of Canaan, the Moabites maintained hostile relations with the Israelites and frequently harassed them in war. Now, I want to give you the flavor of this just for a moment by going back to the book of Judges. Remember that the book of Ruth is written towards the end of the time of the Judges. So let's go back to Judges chapter 3, and we'll pick up in verse 12 in order to, here's an account, this is one account out of many. In Judges chapter 3, verse 12, of what happened during this time of the Judges. And this is a, it's a bizarre account. Um, And we pick up in Judges chapter 3 and verse 12, where it says, Now the sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord, so the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel because they had done evil in the sight of the Lord. Now, I want you to know that the people of Moab, and in fact, the nation of Moab, was a tool in the hand of God in order to discipline his people. All right? It was a tool in the hand of God in order to deal with Israel, especially during this time of the judges. Verse 13, and he gathered to himself the sons of Ammon and Amalek, and he went and defeated Israel. And they possessed the city of the palm trees. The sons of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. But when the sons of Israel cried to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for them, Ehud, the son of Gurah, the Benjamite, a left-handed man. And the sons of Israel sent tributes by him to Eglon, the king of Moab, Ehud, made himself a sword that had two edges, a cubic in length, and he, and he bound it on his right thigh under his cloak. He presented the tribute to Eglon, the king of Moab. Now, Eglon was a very fat man. Now, let me remind you at that particular time, if from the ancient world's point of view, a fat man was a good thing, not a bad thing. It meant that the gods had blessed him, okay? Wow, if that was only true today, I mean. <laughs> it meant that God, the gods had really blessed him. That, that was the fat man. 
Verse 18, and it came about when he had finished presenting the tribute that he sent uh, away the people who had carried the tribute. But he himself turned back from the idols which were at Gilead and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he said, keep silent. And all who attended him left them. And he had came to him while he was sitting alone in the cool of the roof chamber. And he had said, I have a message from God for you. And he arose from his seat. He had stretched out his left hand and took from his right side of his leg, in this particular case, took the sword from the right thigh and thrust it into his belly. The handle also went in after the blade and the fat covered over the blade for he did not draw the sword out of the belly and ref- and, and the refuge came out. Then Ehud went out into the vestibule and shut the doors of the roof chamber behind him and locked them. And so it was a while before anybody discovered that Eglin was gone. He was dead. It was a long time. So there, that represents, later on, when the news spread through Israel, there was great rejoicing because the king of Moab now has been destroyed because he had oppressed them for over 18 years. So what I want you to see, this is one example on many examples here of the long history of Israel's relationship with Moab was an incredibly bloody one. The death of the fat king of Moab, Iglon, and their defeat is only one example of many that demonstrates their hatred for one another as nations. Now, the second aspect of what this young servant boy says to Boaz in verse 6, let's go back to Ruth chapter 2. If you heard it as a Jew in Israel at that time, it's somewhat ironic, but it's also calming. First, he says, Ruth is a young Moabite woman. (gasps) A Moabite woman? All right, you get the idea. But the second thing he says, Ruth came with Naomi from Moab. That's why I said this is somewhat ironic and yet at the same time calming. This is relieving information for Boaz because he knew Naomi as a close relative. Later in the text, you'll see that he had already heard an advanced version of Naomi and Ruth's story. You think about how profound this is. Ruth understood that everyone in Israel could possibly see her as a Moabite, an enemy. Most young women would have tried to disguise themselves, pretend to be a Jewish to avoid any hatred or violence that could come her way. She doesn't pretend anything. Ruth's courage and boldness is seen in her genuineness. I'm not going to try to pretend to be anybody that who I am. I'm a Moabite woman, and I'm here, and I'm at your mercy. She's not a fake. She is who she is. She takes a risk by being authentic. She doesn't disguise the fact that she is a Moabite. How could someone as vulnerable as she is take such a huge risk? How is that even possible? Well, let me suggest to you that I believe that it was her confidence and her fear of the Lord 
that was deeply rooted in Yahweh, the God of Israel. I mean, she has said that back in chapter 1 and verse 16, where she said to Naomi, your God, my God, right? Your God, my God. This is something that was well-established in her heart long before she left Moab. It is um, unusual to see this type of devoted confidence in God by a young woman like herself. Incredibly unusual. And step back and you think about this at this particular point. Even in the Jewish canon, the title of this book, Ruth, is named after a woman, not just a woman, but a Gentile. Incredible. Who happened to be from the enemies of Israel. Incredible. Now, the focus of the narrative is taken away from the servant boy. Turning to Ruth in verse 7, the servant boy relates to Boaz a very bold and yet humble request made by Ruth. So, we just talked a little bit about Ruth's honorable reputation, Now let's talk a little bit about Ruth's humble request in verse 7. One aspect, there are really two important elements here in verse 7 that you need to see that further highlight the remarkable godly character of this young woman. The first one is Ruth's humble and bold request that's made to this servant boy. Look at it again. Look at verse 7. As the servant boy relates this to Boaz, he says, and she said, please let me glean and gather after the reapers among the sheaves. Notice that verse 7 continues the servant boy's report to his boss, Boaz, concerning Ruth's genuine request. Ruth is speaking very politely to a young servant boy. He is either her age or younger, She is seeking permission to glean in the field. She recognizes that he was in charge over the other workers, and she respects his position, even though he is young, just like herself. She starts off by saying, please. Nah, is the Hebrew word. Nah, please. It's an emphatic particle. Some translators translate it, I pray thee, I pray thee. So she politely pleads with this young man to let her glean in the field over the, um, that he oversees. And the word that she uses is a cohortative imperfect. It, it, it seeks volitional permission to let her pick up pieces of barley grain sheaves. We know it's barley grain because that's the emphasis in verse 22 of chapter 1 because it was the beginning of the barley harvest. So she asked permission to pick up pieces of the barley grain sheaves, the gleaners that have left behind after their gleaning. So she's not looking for a handout like you would see panhandlers today. Uh, she was looking to work, uh, to work hard in the field, to gather the leftover the sheaves of barley, taking them to the threshing floor so that they could be turned into flour, and then taking them home to bake so she and Naomi could survive. So Ruth 
is brave. She's bold. She's also humble in the way that she approaches this young worker for permission to gather grain. And again, what I really want you to see here in the text is you've got to realize that Ruth did not know whether or not this young servant boy would turn on her or whether or not he would accept her, her plea. She had no idea. She had to take a huge risk in making this request because it was obvious who she was. And the servant boy immediately recognized her. She's not one of the regular women around here in Israel. Well, in response to this, the young servant boy is not quite sure what to do with this Moabite woman. He doesn't want to get into trouble one way or the other. So he puts her into a small shelter. It's described there in verse 7 as a house. Um, thus she came and remained from morning until now. She has been sitting in the house. That's the way our NIV translators have translated that. So he puts her in this house, this little small shelter. That's probably what it is near the field to await some kind of answer from someone higher up on the chain of command. That's when God, by his redemptive providence, brings the big boss Boaz, suddenly into the picture. He arrives seeking to know who this young woman is. So you can see Ruth's humble and bold request made to this servant boy. Well, the second thing I want you to see in verse 7 is Ruth's willingness to wait for permission. Her willingness to wait for permission. Most people at this particular point would become really impatient. The place where Ruth was placed was probably a small shelter that was built for the field workers to provide them with occasional relief from the sun and, or inclement weather. It was a temporary shelter. So on the one hand, the young servant boy did not want to stir the wrath of his leaders by allowing a foreigner into the field. On the other hand, he didn't want to just turn her away because he knew the reputation of his boss and how his boss had this incredibly charitable heart. He understood that. Again, this is God's merciful providence at work in this young boy. So Ruth is told to wait, but given a place of shelter while she waited. Then the young servant boy tells Boaz that Ruth has been waiting from morning until now. You see that in verse 7? From morning until now. Most Bible scholars believe that this is an expression that meant, it's an old Hebraism that meant all day. She's been waiting all day, from morning until now. Why? Well, because the owners of the field, by tradition, would come to inspect the work of the laborers in the early evening. How much progress did they make in the field that day? And it's likely that Ruth waited from early morning to late evening in the shelter by the field in order to get permission to glean the leftovers. What does that tell you about Ruth? This young woman is not only brave, bold, and humble, she also possesses great perseverance. She's sitting there waiting all day long. You know how impatient you get when you're sitting there waiting for the doctor to call you in? Yeah. My appointment was 45 minutes ago. Where is that? 
doctor. How am I patient again? Ruth waits all day long. All day long to get an answer. Now, at this particular point, you've got to understand that Ruth and Naomi themselves, the very fact that she has to do this, they're starving, right? They're starving, and they're seeing all of this grain. She's sitting there by the field watching all this grain being harvested while she's starving, waiting for permission. Now, upon hearing what the servant boy has to say, Boaz had every right to have her removed from his property. He could have viewed her as an enemy or at least as a nuisance. Most Israelites would have done that. That's what makes this so remarkable. But in a sudden plot twist here, he responds to this information in a most gracious way. Which brings us to the second part of what we want to look at, and that's verses 8 through 10. The gracious response of authority. Now, any ancient Israelite reading this story for the first time would have been astonished at Boaz's response. Verse 8 shows us Boaz's gracious offer. That's verse 8. Boaz's gracious offer. In verse 8, he calls her my daughter. See that? Take a look at verse 8. Then Boaz said to Ruth, listen carefully, my daughter. Do not go to glean in another field. Furthermore, do not go on from this one, but stay here with my maids. Well, when he said, my daughter, it's an appellative term of endearment. The moment that Ruth heard these kind words, all the anxiousness and all the nervousness of her risk now dissipates. You could almost see it. All right. The moment she hears those words, his kind response to her caused her apprehensiveness to evaporate. Now, notice two things here in verse 8. He responds to her request from a negative standpoint. And then the second point is that he responds to her request from a positive standpoint. So let's take a look at the negative standpoint. Um. His negative response to her shows his desire to protect her. His negative response shows his desire to protect her. Boaz is a pretty quick guy. He all of a sudden sees this very vulnerable young woman sitting at the edge of his field who is a foreigner and could easily be mistaken as an enemy of Israel. He immediately sees all of this. And he first he tells her what not to do. And notice that everything he says on what not to do is in order to protect her. That's what he's thinking. So 
Why does he tell her not to go to another field to glean? Well, the obvious reason is that other Israelite landowners may not take too kindly to a Moabite woman entering their field. Gentile people, and especially women, were viewed by some ungodly Israelites as filth and scum. To have them in their field would defile the field. This would have been especially true of Moabites if Ruth were to try to do the same thing in a field owned by another Jewish man, the results could have been tragic. Boaz is trying to keep her from, keep her from that kind of horrible reaction or consequence. He cares about her and her mother-in-law. In fact, he reinforces his negative command here in verse 8 by saying, do not go from this one, but stay here with my mates. She could get herself into trouble by stepping outside of this field. While she was in the field, it was safe zone for her. Here on these college and university campuses, people going to safe zones. Well, this was Ruth's safe zone. He's outlining the safe zone for her. As long as you're in my field, you're safe, he says. So he gives her this negative instruction because he cares about her and he cares about her mother-in-law. She could get herself into trouble by stepping outside of that field. While she was in the field, it was her safe zone. This was for her protection Remaining among his maids provided personal protection. So, first of all, I want you to see here, his negative response to her shows his desire to protect her. But the second thing I want you to see in verse 8 is his positive response to her shows his desire to provide for her. The negative response is to protect her. The positive one is to provide for her. Positively, what's he say here in verse 8? He tells her to remain and labor with his workforce, especially among his women workers or maids. He gives her permission to glean his field. And the reference here to the maids in the Hebrew language is a very specific reference to younger single women or younger newly married women that worked for Boaz. So there's both types there that are referred to here. Ruth was instructed to remain with them and they could provide a wall of protection for her very vulnerable position. But they will also make sure that there is plenty left over from the first gleaning for her to harvest in order to provide food to sustain her and Naomi. So they're going to provide this wall of protection, but at the same time, they're also going to leave sheaves behind that she can collect. This is not a handout welfare system. This is a welfare system of gleaning that required people to go to work. They had to go to work. So this was a life-saving provision for her. And Ruth is overwhelmed with his generosity. This is way more. She's taking this great risk. She thinks that she could be mistreated or put to death whatever the case may be, all of a sudden he treats her incredibly mercifully. Now look at verses 9 and 10. 
This is Boaz's gracious instructions. And look specifically at what he says, picking up here in verse nine. Let your eyes be on the field, which you reap and go after them. Indeed, I have commanded the servants not to touch you. When you are thirsty, go to the water jars and drink from what the servants draw. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground and said to him, why have I found favor in your sight that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? Great question. So in verses eight and nine, you can see Boaz's specific instructions and Ruth's incredibly emotional response. The first thing in verse nine, Boaz gives her three clear instructions for her provision. First of all, he says, follow only the female workers in the field. Follow only the female workers in the field. Boaz wants Ruth to hang around the women in the field and to allow these women to see to it that she's cared for, not mistreated. These women traditionally cared for one another. And Boaz had instructed them to bring Ruth into their community of care. There is protection and strength in numbers, and this is especially true when you understand the second instruction. Because the second instruction in verse 9 says, fellow male workers are instructed basically not to harass her. Okay? He tells her, indeed, I've commanded the servants not to touch you. And the Hebrew word for servants here is used again specifically to refer to the young men servants who are masculine gender here who are there working in the field. Knowing the common habits of some young men, Boaz is protecting her from his own male workers. So I want you to notice here, this is history's first sexual harassment policy in the workplace. All right? It's the very first in all of history. I've commanded the young men not to touch you. No sexual harassment in the workplace. That's the idea. Boaz was way ahead of his time. Ruth could go about her work knowing that she was protected from all the young men who might want to come and touch her. It could be a sexual kind of touch, or it could be a menacing touch to hurt her, harm her. Again, the Hebrew word for touch means any type of menacing touch for sexual purposes or for physical assault. And amazingly, then at this particular point, you understand that Boaz doesn't stop there. The next instruction he gives Ruth is unusual and incredibly surprising. He says, find satisfaction for your thirst where the male servants drink. What? Not only is he protecting and providing for her, but he's also beginning to show her special favor. Often male and female servants had separate places to quench their thirst. Here, Boaz breaks tradition, instructs Ruth to drink where the male servants drink. That was an expression of special honor for her. Many of his own female maids did not have that kind of a favor. But you've got to understand that there's a special reason for this unique favoritism. She is a Moabitess. She is a common woman. But he also recognizes special qualities in her that he does not see in other women. He knows things about her that have really influenced his judgment in relationship to her. 
So there you've got Boaz gives her those three clear instructions for her provision. The second thing I want you to see in verse 10 is that Ruth is emotionally overwhelmed with gratefulness. She is emotionally overwhelmed with gratefulness. A tsunami of appreciation washes over her. Look at verse 10. She falls on her face, bowing to the ground. She knows she doesn't deserve the kindness of Boaz. She knows her people have been enemies of Israel. She was probably expecting to be mistreated and harmed. Instead, she's given everything she's asked for and much more than she requested. The sheer emotional intensity of the moment exceeds her ability to restrain herself. She's never experienced such kindness. In many ways, in many ways, I want you to understand, put yourself into Ruth's sandals. In many ways, this does not make sense to her. Doesn't make sense. So she blurts out, why have I found favor? Title my message. I'm staying through this. I'm going, that is such a key explanation, exclamation that she makes there. She blurts that out. How, why have I found favor in your sight that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner, she says there. Why would Boaz treat an alien this way? Ruth does not only does not fully understand why Boaz should be so kind to her and even treat her with special care. Boaz, most Bible scholars believe, was between 45 and 50 years of age when this took place. He was a content, why? Because he was a contemporary of Elimelech and Naomi. He knew them. So he had to be of that age. Um, is this the way that Boaz treated all the pretty young women who came along? No. And again, I don't think this is the case at all because he explains his reasons in verses 11 and 12 and it has nothing to do with the fact that she's young and pretty. There are special qualities he knows about her that goes way beyond skin deep. These are the very qualities of a godly woman that cause her to stand out from all the other women. And once Boaz understood who she was, and what she had done, it became a determining factor in his treatment of her. Now look closely, then last of all here, at the grand reason for his graciousness in verses 11 through 13. Look at this, the grand reason for his graciousness. Verse 11 talks about her extraordinary selflessness. Verse 11 says, Boaz replied to her, all that you have done for your mother-in-law after the death of your husband has been fully reported to me and how you left your father and your mother and the land of your birth and came to a people that you did not know, did not previously know. Now listen to this. Boaz knew the care Ruth had for Naomi after the death of her own husband. That made an impression on him. And we study this account of the care of Naomi in chapter one that Ruth had. And even though she had suffered the loss of her own husband, Ruth didn't allow her own loss to cloud her care for her mother-in-law. She decided to remain loyal to Naomi 
even after Naomi became angry and bitter at God, Naomi was not a pleasant person to be around, and yet Ruth, as a daughter-in-law, stuck with her and followed her to Bethlehem. Boaz heard this remarkable story, and he was impressed. Ruth had remained true to her vow. And you can see that in chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. Her selfless loyalty and commitment to her word caused her to stand out as a very unique woman. Let me say it again. Her selfless loyalty and commitment to her word caused her to stand out as a very unique woman. The second thing here that I think is key is that Boaz knew that Ruth had left her family and her childhood home to follow Naomi back to Bethlehem. To leave your childhood home and family was one thing, but to blindly go to live in a foreign land among people she did not know, to potentially be mistreated as an illegal alien, this showed a remarkable amount of faith in God. Her trust in Yahweh and his provision was all that Ruth had, No one in Israel at that time showed that kind of abiding faith. No one. And I got to remind you again what we studied earlier. When Ruth married Malone, she had to vow allegiance to Yahweh. She had to submit herself to the God of her husband for the rest of her life and then submit herself to her Jewish husband himself. She made that vow. Her God became Yahweh, and it was in him that all of her hope was based. So this has proved genuine in her life as she suffered Malone's death and then followed Naomi at great personal cost and risk to back to Bethlehem. All her hope was in Yahweh. There was no other ways her selfless actions can be explained. Now, this is exactly what Peter talks about. The apostle Peter talks about in 1 Peter 3, 5. Listen to what Peter says. He says, for in this way, in former times, the holy woman also who hoped in God used to adorn themselves being submissive to their own husbands. Ruth was one of those holy women of former times. Now look at verse 12. And this is where we find his engaging or encouraging support. Verse 12 is the acknowledgement from Boaz that he sees Ruth as a Gentile convert to Judaism. Why? Look at what verse 12 says. It says, may the Lord reward your work and your wages be full from the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to seek refuge. Now, why does he make that statement? Think about this for a moment. He acknowledges her saving faith despite her Moab origins. In verse 12, Boaz blesses Ruth with an incredible pronouncement. May the Lord reward your work. Since it was obvious to Boaz that Ruth trust and her hope was solidly established in Yahweh, he confers on her a blessing from Yahweh. Literally, may Yahweh reward your labor. Essentially, he says, because you trust Yahweh, may Yahweh bless you. Boaz even goes further and says, and your wages be full from the Lord. So to have full wages was a Hebraism expression that Yahweh provide all that she would ever need. 
This, there would be nothing lacking in her life since she had demonstrated such an abiding trust in Yahweh up to this point. And then he concludes in verse 12 with a statement that indicates that Ruth has been fully brought under the Abrahamic and Mosaic covenants. She is truly a part of real Israel, even though she was born outside of the promises. The statement he makes to her speaks of the God of Israel under whose wings you have come to seek refuge. That's covenantal language for the people of Israel. We find it in both Exodus and Deuteronomy, both referring to Israel's protection because of the strong wings of Yahweh. In Exodus 19 and verse 4, it says, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. In Deuteronomy 32 and verse 11, like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that hovers over its young, he spreads his wings and caught them. He carried them on his pinions. So by the time we get to to Ruth chapter 3 and verse 9, it is Boaz who actually becomes the answer to his own prayer. (laughs) All right, we don't know this at this particular point, but Boaz becomes the answer to his own prayer. And then look at verse 13, last of all. Her enabled strength here. And notice what she says in verse 13, where she says, then I said, or then she said, I have found favor in your sight, my Lord, for you have comforted me and indeed have spoken kindly to your maidservant, though I am not like one of your maidservants. Finally, Ruth responds to Boaz's blessings. Her response still marvels at the fact that she is not like one of the rest of the women in Israel, and yet he has spoken to her so kindly. He has made special arrangements for her provision and her protection, and she respects respectfully refers to him as my Lord. Almost identical to the Apostle Peter's statement about Sarah in 1 Peter 3, 6. Just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. She also says that what Boaz has said and done has brought her great comfort And the Hebrew word that she chooses at this point means that he has alleviated her sorrow and distress and given her emotional strength to go on. That's the idea. He has alleviated her emotional stress and sorrow and given her strength to go on. So Ruth, sometimes I don't think we really realize how emotionally encouraging our words can be to those who are struggling. This is what happened with Boaz. Ruth was gracious. She was courageous, bold, genuine, humble. She took risks, but she persevered. She was loyal, true to her word. All these qualities did not come naturally from Ruth. They came from the God that she trusted. And it is amazing to watch how confidence in God instills great virtues in men and women. How confidence in God does that. Let me close with a story. There's a true story told several years ago about a family who lived in a two-story home, and that two-story home caught, caught on fire. As the family was rushing to make their way out, the youngest boy became terrified, and he tore away from his mother and ran back upstairs. 
Suddenly, he appeared at a smoke-filled window, crying hysterically. Standing aside, his father shouted, jump, son, jump, I'll catch you. And the boy cried, but daddy, I can't see you. I know, his father yelled back, but I can see you. Without being able to see his father, the boy jumped and he was saved. What gave that young man the courage and the boldness to jump? Was his confidence and his trust in his father. Ruth's graciousness, boldness, courage, genuineness, humility, endurance, loyalty, and sincerity came from her trust in Yahweh. This was something Boaz saw. And that made her stand out from all the other women, even in Israel. This is exactly what Christian women in our feministic culture and society need today. Genuine confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ, trusting what he has designed as true feminism, not trusting the ever-changing values of human opinion, not trusting those. Let's bow for prayer. Gracious Father, we thank you for all that you teach us through the life and the circumstances of Ruth and what has occurred with her relationship with Boaz, how you redemptively and providentially worked in her life. And because of her confidence in you, she was able to take great risk, be bold, be courageous, yet humble and gracious, and be a woman that was true to her word and loyal to what she had vowed And it was Boaz who saw this as a stark and shining example, radically different than every other woman in his culture at the time. It made her stand out. Dear Father, raise up both men and women in our society with that kind of faith. This we pray in Christ's name.